Welcome to A Transforming Word with Pastor Bill Buffington. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Inglewood. Today on A Transforming Word... You commit to a job and find a better job, and you change your commitment. There's no wrong in that, usually. Um, you know, but a covenant is different. You can't enter into a covenant and then think you find a better deal and leave a covenant. Y'all know that? And so God is the one that demonstrates to us that he's a covenant God. He makes a covenant and he keeps it, even to his own hurt. He made a covenant with Israel. And even though Israel as a whole, they're not Christians, they're not believers, they haven't turned to Christ. God says, I still keep my part of the deal. Have you ever had cold feet? Sometimes we enter situations we commit to, but due to our nature, we may flake out. We humans have trust issues, commitment issues, and a lack of overall faith. But when it comes to God, He is a covenant God. What does that mean? Today, Pastor Bill reminds you that God never backs out of His Word. God stays true to everything He promises. And when you put your trust and faith in God, you can rest easy knowing He will never abandon you. Now, here's Pastor Bill in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, for today's edition of A Transforming Word. Now, I've heard people say this, and it's stupid when they say it. That person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You know, that's not, that can't be true, right? Now, I've seen people be so religious and silly that they're not helpful. But if you're really genuinely heavenly minded, you will be the most earthly good. The Apostle Paul was so heavenly minded, right? He was significantly used by God. And he was so heavenly minded, even though he was being put in jail for sharing the gospel, he was being beaten for his testimony that Christ had risen. Had he been earthly minded, he could have said, I'm going to slow down on this preaching thing because everywhere I go, they don't want to hear me anyway. They put me in jail. They beat me. The believers backstabbed me over there. Paul could have said, if he was earthly minded, I'm going to slow down on this preaching thing. But he said something different. One of my favorite verses, because it's kind of gangster. Paul says... In Romans 8, 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul said, look, this little bit of stuff y'all put me through, jailing me, beating me. Imagine that he's saying this to the jailers, right? This little suffering that y'all put me through don't even compare to the glory that's going to be revealed. Paul was saying, "I'm, I'm focused on the next life already. So if you beat me, I get a reward for it, so bring it. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? So if you kill me, I get a reward for that. So nah, how you, you can't stop a guy that's that heavenly minded. Paul's like, look, if you kill me for preaching the gospel, I get a reward for that. So I'm not going to stop preaching because you're threatening to kill me. We're going to beat you and jail you. Well, then the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared. I get rewarded for that too. So you can beat me, jail me, kill me. I'm going to do my thing. That's a heavenly minded man. Amen. Amen. Don't let anybody tell you that someone is, can be too heavenly minded to be earthly good. You're only good on earth. You're only useful on earth when you truly are heavenly minded. When you're not focused on the things of this earth, but you're focused way beyond this place. I'm living for something else. This is not home. This is not forever. This is all temporary at best. So I'm living for the life that's to come. Amen. That's how Paul was living. So again, he sees the throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne. Verse three, And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So we get these stones, the jasper and the sardis stones. These are 
It says that the one that sat on the throne was like these things. So this is probably the, the colors of light that was coming forth. The jasper would have been like a diamond. So white light would have come from the jasper. The sardis is a, a red stone. So there have been white and red light coming forth from the throne. And it says that there was a rainbow around the throne. And so the rainbow was God's covenant that he wouldn't do what again? Flood the earth again. Now, y'all know the rainbow got hijacked by another group. Y'all know. So, um, but the rainbow originally, right, the rainbow was in Genesis, God had destroyed the earth by a flood. And, and, and after he did so, because it was so wicked, he said, I'm never going to do that again. If you don't know where it's at, I'm going to read it with you guys. In Genesis 9, I'll read 11 through 17 of Genesis chapter 9 with you guys. You can write that down. Genesis chapter 9, 11 through 17. This is what it says. God speaking, thus I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. I'll stop right there. That was the rainbow. So every time you see a rainbow outside, it's a reminder. God says, I created a rainbow as a sign, as a sign of my promise that I'll never do that. Do you think it's interesting that that's been hijacked? We should be, as believers, we should be able to rock a rainbow. You know, I wouldn't wear a rainbow shirt out right now because somebody would be like, hey, somebody be trying to holler at me that I don't want hollering at me, you know. So it's just a different message, but it was hijacked. That belongs to the Lord. And so he says, as he's looking at the throne and the one that's on the throne and all the way around the throne, it's not a half a rainbow. It's not the kind of the, the form that we normally see it in. It goes all the way around the throne, um, but it's a rainbow there. And again, uh, we see just around the throne, this rainbow, this, this thing that would have reminded us of God and of his covenant, of his commitment, that I'm never going to destroy this thing again in that way. That he's a, he's a covenant God and he's a covenant keeping God. And as we get a view into eternity, we know that he's kept that covenant. God's kept his word. I think that's something that you, as you study the Bible all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way to the New, that God is a, he's a covenant God. And covenant is greater than commitment. You know, when God makes a covenant it's, uh, it's usually binding. You know, when God calls us into covenants, what's one of the covenants that God calls us into? Marriage, right? God tells us that, you know, we can be married. Y'all know marriage is a covenant, right? Not just a commitment. It's not just a relate. If I make a commitment, I could change my mind about that commitment. I had committed to go there and then I, I'm not going to go there no more. Anybody ever committed to go to school and stop going to school? Don't raise your hand, right? So there's commitments, right? You can make a commitment, change your mind about the commitment, you know. You commit to a job and find a better job, and you change your commitment. There's no wrong in that, usually, um, you know, but a covenant is different. You can't enter into a covenant and then think you find a better deal and leave a covenant. Y'all know that? And so God is the one that demonstrates to us that he's a covenant God. He makes a covenant, and he keeps it even to his own hurt. He made a covenant with Israel. And even though Israel as a whole, they're not Christians, they're not believers, they haven't turned to Christ. God said, I still keep my part of the deal. I'm still leaving the door open. I'm still, I'm, I'm keeping my word. And so God is, a, 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 well, that gives me great confidence because there's a lot of God's promises that I'm banking on. 
And so when I see that he's a covenant God, he's a covenant keeping God, he keeps his word. I have every reason to trust him. I have every reason to to have faith in what he says he's going to do um, because he keeps his word. Verse four now around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And so around this throne, which again, all the focus of heaven is on the throne where the Lord is seated. There's 24 lesser thrones. And on these lesser thrones are 24 elders. Now, there's lots of speculation as to who the 24 elders are. There's volumes and volumes of books on who they are. I think the most common thought is that 12 there's 24, so 12 of the patriarchs of the Old Testament and 12 of the apostles of the New Testament make up the 24 elders. But I wonder because John is one of the 12, but he sees 24, so wouldn't he be on the throne? So I don't know if that fits. I think that works for people because the numbers work. The Bible doesn't tell us outright who they are. So I'm comfortable with that. I'm, um, this is the way I study and teach the Bible. I'm always going to be uncomfortable saying more than what I can say for certain. If you like to speculate, you can get on the Internet. And there's I'm telling you, they they got books about what we don't know for sure. But sometimes I think as we focus on what we don't know for sure, we lose sight of the thing that we did know for sure. Focusing on who these 24. I'll tell you who I'll tell you what we can know for sure about them. But the big deal is what they're where they're at and what they're doing. So it's not who they are and how it's, it's what they are. It's where they're at and what they're doing, who their focus is upon. So these 24 elders represent at least this. They at least represent the people of God who have been redeemed. How do we know that? Because of how they've been presented. They're clothed in white robes. When we see and every time we see in the heavenly scene, people clothed in white robes, the right, the white robes are symbolic of Christ's righteousness which has been applied to people that have put their faith in him. Everybody here know you ain't that pure. Amen. Amen. So even on a good day, right? We're not, none of us going to get to heaven because we're pure. It's Christ's righteousness that's applied to us. So for believers, we've had this exchange where God says, look, I took your filthy, wretched, sinful, wicked life, whatever that was for you. And I took all of it and I applied it to Jesus. And he paid the debt on the cross for all your ugliness. I took his perfect holy, sinless life. And because your faith is in him, I've applied that to you. That when you stand before God, you're not standing in your own righteousness. You're standing in Christ's righteousness. Amen. And that's what the white robe represents. White represents purity. That's how come it used to mean when a girl got married, she wore a white dress because she was pure. Now they wear white dresses because they're supposed to wear white dresses, you know. Um, But it should be, that's unfortunate reality, but it should be the white dress should symbolic, it should be symbolic of purity. That's for y'all that didn't know the tradition, that's what it is. So, um, you know, I will stop there. I made anybody feel bad, but this is what it used to mean. So, we're wearing white robes in heaven. It's the white robes are symbolic of the, the righteousness which Christ. So, we know that this group of 24 elders are representative of saints or the people of God. Who have been redeemed. We know that for a fact. We'll know a little bit later that they're, as they sing their song, because some people have suggested they might have been angels. They're not angels. We'll see angels in this chapter. These are people. The, the songs that people sing are different than the songs that the angels sing. So we, people can worship God for some things that the angels cannot worship God for. The people have been redeemed. Angels have not been redeemed. And so um, I should explain that real quick. There's a distinction between Human beings and angels in this. 
The only two beings that God has created that are eternal are angels and human beings. So everything else God created is not eternal. If you love your dogs, they, they, when they die, get a new dog. They're not eternal. They're not awaiting you in heaven. They're not running around. Fluffy is not running around the gates waiting for you to appear there. Human beings, angels, everything else is, is not eternal. So the angels, um, we know that they're in the unseen realm. They exist in the presence of Almighty God. Uh, Satan used to be an angel. He was an anointed cherub that covered um, then he fell. So he's now he's still an angel, but he's a fallen angel. So in the unseen realm, there, there are angels that still belong to the Lord. And there's demons that fell with Satan. That still are fallen angels. They're in the unseen realm. Here's the difference. The angels that fell, is there a plan of redemption for them? Can they be forgiven? Is God going to give them a second chance? No. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that God does not give aid to the angels but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So God says, when the angels fall, there's nothing I can do for you. Done. Why? That's the, I mean, I, I wonder that, like, you know, maybe God will have a soft place one day and forgive Satan and repent. He'll forgive him. Never. It's a wrap. Why is that? I, I believe it's because of where they fell from. They fell from a place where they saw God in all of his glory and still decided, I want to do my thing. And God said, okay, then you can go do your thing. There'll be no plan of redemption for you. There'll be no coming back. And so when you wonder, what, why does Satan care about us? Why, did they, why, why do they care about what? Why would they bother with mankind? Because I want you to think of how it must bug them to watch you and me. We're not perfect. They're they watching us. They watch you tear up. They're there when you do what you do. And they're like, they can get another chance. That just don't seem right. They, you know, they want you to go to hell with them. They know where they're going. They know it's a fact that they're going to hell. I've often said demons are like, I used to do youth ministry, and whenever we would be around a pool, I'd see all the boys coming, and they're trying to come and tackle me to throw me in a pool. And, you know, that was just what we would do around pools. I would, you know, throw the cell phone. And if I know I'm going in, I'm, I'm going to grab as many kids as I can. I'm just making sure I, I'm just not going alone, right? I'm, I'm going in. I committed. I'm going. But I'm snatching up as many little kids as I can. Y'all all coming with me, you know? That's where Satan is working from. He knows he's going to hell. And as many people as he can deceive and lie to and ensnare and entrap and take with him, that's what he's trying to do. That's the motivation behind his wickedness. He also hates God. And so he hates the fact that you can be saved because he can't. Now, for you and me, we got a different situation, right? God knows that we're flawed and God has made a a plan for you and I to be redeemed that if we would put our faith in Christ, no matter what we have done, God is willing to forgive us, to cleanse us. He'll move inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit, help us to transform from the inside out. The the, the supernatural down payment that you belong to the Lord and will go to heaven is the Holy Spirit. And God will continue to work in us until we go to be with him. And so that's not true for angels. It's only true for human beings. And so, again, around this throne, there are these 24 elders are sitting on these lesser thrones. Now, Why are they on thrones? The Bible says that we're joint heirs with Christ. It says that in Romans 8, 17. We're also told in 2 Timothy 2, 12, that we're going to reign with him. We're going to reign with him. And so that's why they're on thrones. They're enthroned with him, but they're just, they're on lesser thrones. They're not, they're not on thrones where they're being worshiped. They're on thrones where their, their worship we'll see is directed toward the one that's on the throne. It says they had crowns of gold on their heads. Um, We know that saints and believers, we know that we can live in such a way that God will reward us, um, that we can receive crowns and we can receive 
you know, crowns for your Christian service, for your sacrifice. There are different things that we can do in our Christian experience where God says, I'm going to give you, you get a crown for that. What do they do with these crowns? We'll see in, in a little bit that they take the crowns and they cast them in worship at the feet of the Lord. You know, uh, they take that which is significant and it's like, God, I give it all to you. But we know that this represents the redeemed. Now look at verse five. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And so all, all these things that just demonstrate God's awe and his power. There was thunderings, lightnings, voices that are coming from the throne. Again, all things that would speak just his power. The second part of verse five says, there were seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So there's these lamps. This is uh, it's taking pictures from the Old Testament temple and tabernacle. Um, the lamps that were there were lit by oil. Oil is in the Bible symbolic of what? The Holy Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, this, these oil trees that would provide nonstop you know, fire, nonstop oil to the lamps to stay burning, uh, symbolic of just the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the ongoing work, the continual work. Well, here in this heavenly scene, as he looks at the throne and looks at the one that's enthroned and the thrones around the thrones and hears the thunderings and the lightnings and the voices, he sees these seven lamps that are burning. And it says they're burning before the throne. It says, which are the seven spirits of God? We saw this same thing earlier in chapter one, verse four. So they're not seven Holy Spirits, right? The seven spirits of God, it's in chapter one, verse four. It's explained in Isaiah 11, verse two. Is this, the number seven is the number of what? Completion. So that the seven spirits of God are speaking of just the complete working of the Holy Spirit. If you look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, it lays out what that looks like. You know, what are the, what's the complete working of the Holy Spirit? What's, what's the Holy Spirit accomplish or do? And I'll read it to us real quick. Isaiah 11, verse 2, sorry. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. It's the full working, the complete working of the Holy Spirit. And so all these things are there before the throne. So we have the Holy Spirit there present. Verse 6, before the throne, there, were, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So we got this sea of this sea that's like glass or like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, there's four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. So uh, if you're a note taker, write down as far as the four living creatures. These are angels. They're described, these same angels we're going to read about here are described in Ezekiel chapter 1, 4 through 14, and also Ezekiel chapter 10, 20 and 22. I'll go ahead and read their description because it's kind of interesting and people, people have a lot to say about this. So it says in verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So a few things about these creatures. Number one, the old King James is a bad translation because it calls them beasts. They're not beasts. They're living creatures. These are either angelic beings. And so um, beast kind of gives a wrong connotation or a wrong idea about what these are. These are four living creatures. When it says they're full of eyes in front and in the back, that means they're seeing everything. They're insightful. They, they are seeing everything that's going on. And then we get these descriptions. One looks like a lion. The other one looks like a calf. The other one has a face like a man. The other one has 
It's like a flying eagle. And there are volumes and volumes on what that means. I've looked into all of them. I've, I read and read and read. And um, again, I think this is another place where you could go a long way describing what each of these things may or may not be and lose sight of what comes out of their mouth and what it is that they're doing. So um, I'm going to keep it simple for you. One of the common thoughts is that, that I don't necessarily agree with, but it's, it's probably the most common one, is that each one represents uh, one of the Gospels and got the presentation of Jesus through each of the Gospels. So the Matthew, they see as the lion, that he shows Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah as he's presenting Jesus to the Jews. Mark, they say, is like the ox. Um, Mark shows Jesus as the humble servant and the worker. Um, Mark's gospel shows Jesus doing many things. Um, Luke, they say, is the man, um, shows Jesus as the, the perfect man, uh, the second Adam. And then John is seen as the eagle, uh, that the representing Jesus as the man from heaven or the sky. And that I hear those, right? I just feel like they're a stretch to me. Um, I don't know that I could... I don't know if I just could read my Bible and say, and come up with that, you know? And so most of the descriptions I found feel that way to me. This is another one that I, I, may, I may be a little more comfortable with is the lion. So it's looking at each of these four living creatures and saying this. Each of the four living creatures is presented in a way that represents the, it would, it would represent the best of its created type. So if you looked at the, the lion, the lion is the mightiest of the animal kingdom. It's the best of the best in that realm. If you looked at the ox, it's the strongest of the work animals, or the, the domesticated animals. The eagle is, is the, it's the best of all the birds. It's the, each one of these represents the highest form of what it is. Um, man is the highest of all of God's creation. God has put man, he's put everything under us. I wouldn't get lost here. Um, I'm suffice to say, I don't know if it matters what each of these faces means. I know these are four angels that are before the throne. They have eyes all around them. They got these different faces. They look these different ways. But I want you to look at what they do before the Lord and what they do in God's presence day and night. Verse 8 says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And before we look real too much at what they say, I want to run, roll back just a moment and remind us of this. These are angelic beings in the unseen realm. I want you to adjust your mental picture when you think about angels to what we're actually seeing in the Bible. I think most times when people think of an angel, you think of a little fluffy white naked baby with wings or, you know, stuff like that. I want you to think about every time you see Angels in the Bible, they're, they're warriors. They're, these creatures don't ever look sweet. When, whenever somebody saw an angel, what was their response? They were afraid. They were like, oh, dang. You know, like they fall down. They get, they get afraid. All the angels are always having to say, hey, fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. So, you know, one angel killed 10,000. You know, uh, one angel can put to death. I mean, these are, these are warrior creatures in the unseen realm. They do battle. They go to war. They scrap with each other. They fight for you. You guys know that in the unseen realm, there are angels that are protecting you when you don't know it. Some of us won't know till we get together in heaven how much your angel's going to be like, man, you overworked me. I want, I want a bonus. You, 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 was putting me, you was putting me to work out there, man. You know, we may never know till we get there what all they did in the unseen realm. And so just, just tune your view in 
to what we're reading about. This, this image is similar. We see in Isaiah, the angels with the six wings. And Isaiah says, with two, they cover their eyes. And with two, they cover their feet. And they, they were there before the Lord. But look at what these angels have to say to God. They say, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They are recognizing God's absolute holiness. They didn't say it once or twice. They said it three times. Holy, holy, holy. We're striving to be holy. We desire to be holy. He is absolutely holy. You've just heard a transforming word brought to you by Pastor Bill Buffington. What's swirling in your mind just now after what you've heard in today's message? Sometimes it takes a bit of time to fully process what was shared. Revelation is definitely one of those books that you have to almost sit and chew on, trying to discern what in the world it all means. But the good news is, God's given us His Word to help us know and understand what's ahead. What a gift. He didn't leave it all a mystery. He's revealing things on each page of this book, whether or not you're fully in the know of all that it means in this moment. Keep studying it on your own and digging into Scripture with an appetite that's ready to take in what God has for you. If you like the message you just heard, we're so glad. You'll find more solid teachings like this one from Pastor Bill Buffington at calvaryinglewood.org. Will you prayerfully consider spreading the good news with us? If so, locate the Give tab on our site. Don't forget, that's calvaryinglewood.org. This ministry is an outpouring of Calvary Chapel Inglewood. We're located in Inglewood, California. So if you have some extra time and are nearby, we'd love for you to attend one of our services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. If there's a scheduling conflict, come Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We hope that this message has ministered to your heart and you have a little more peace next time listening to it. We look forward to our next time as Pastor Bill teaches in Revelation right here on A Transforming Word.